Why, why did I ever let you go? My mom was like, I like that you sing on the podcast. You wouldn't have done that a few years ago. Oh. Because I've always felt like I'm bad at it. Yeah, which is weird because you have a nice singing voice. You telling me that has made me a little bit more confident. So I swear to God, if you're lying and I'm embarrassing myself. I wouldn't do that. I'm not a person who lies to spare people's feelings. Like I'll say things nicely, but I feel like if someone asks me if their outfit is trash and it's trash, I'll be like, that's not it today. Yeah. You know? Which I appreciate. I don't need to be a great singer, but you know, being not terrible is In my opinion, there's enough great singers in the world. Yeah. We need more mid singers. I'm a mid singer. Yeah. I'm a grew up Church of Christ acapella singer. I live in a duplex. My neighbor has the most beautiful, angelic singing. She can sing runs like, do you know who Tori Kelly is? Well, for anyone who knows who Tori Kelly is, she can sing like (laughs) crispy runs. She's trained. And I have like no shame just singing very mid. I'd say you're above mid though. I think I have a nice singing voice, but like, you know, not in her league. And I'm like, well, lucky her that she gets to listen to me also sing through the walls. I also can hear her talking to her dog, which means she can hear me talking to my dog, among other things. (laughs) And it works. (laughs) (sighs) My question for you today is, because it's the new year. Well, this will come out mid-January. Yeah, so it'll be a couple weeks Which for us procrastinators is when we start thinking about our goals. Right. And the new year thoughts. Uh, What did you (laughs) learn about yourself this year? (laughs) 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 Anyways, the vibe. The vibe in this room is weird. The vibe in here is weird. Here being my brain. (laughs) What did I learn about myself this year? I learned that I am incredibly hyper-independent and not in a great way. And now being with groups and friends who love me and want to support me. I think I told my counselor, it's like, you know when you're looking at an ant through a magnifying glass and you're like, wow, it's so big, but then the sun shines and it roasts the ant. (laughs) I feel like this year has been the sun and I'm like holding the magnifying glass to myself and I'm like... Uh, that was such a good image. Yeah, it's just like all the scenarios I'm in this year are really just highlighting that I've been very much. Um, I think I'm holding the magnifying. You are a little bit. I told my counselor about that too. I was like, it's, I think it just is like highlighting things, <laughs> which is a good thing. Ultimately, you know, self awareness is the key to self betterment. I guess the first step. Self awareness is self-awareness the key to is the being key. aware of yourself. Yeah, I'm there. I'm very aware now up my medications because of it we're doing fine anyway yeah so I think I have realized I am extremely hyper independent and really struggle to ask for help and then I'm sad when I don't get it but I didn't ask but then I see other people asking and I'm like that's embarrassing for you just get up and do it yeah and it's like well that's a me problem how is it so easy for other people (laughs) yeah that's a good one and an important lesson Mm -hmm. I do think most of the time people in your life want to help you Mm -hmm. and they just don't know what you need yeah, I'm trying to think of like a fun answer to just follow up with. It's okay if this year was not a fun. <laughs> <laughs> it was a fun year. That's it was. Like... A, it was like one of the most fun years of my life. Yeah, and also painful. Yeah, <laughs> it was the best of times and the worst of times. Literally, I don't think I've ever had a year that was to like quote, a tale of two cities. That quote 
as much as this year did. I know. Same. I feel like, yeah, for both of us. Yeah. Okay. Well, if I think of a fun one, I'll add it in, but your turn. (laughs) I learned a lot about myself this year because it was the first year that I wasn't in a relationship in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing that I learned is I think I absorbed a lot of what my partner wanted and enjoyed. And I think because I had never like lived independently, I never really had a time to explore my adult identity. And he, he was only a couple years older than me, but I think I really like absorbed mm-hmm. a lot of his identity. Mm-hmm. And so I learned a lot about just like what I enjoy and what I want out of life. I think the most important takeaway for me was that I can be independent mm-hmm. and that I enjoy it. And I think a lot of things that I did this year were things that I think for years I kind of felt like I needed to do and wasn't really in a place I thought I couldn't you know, mm-hmm. move out or build my own life for myself. And mm-hmm. and then I did them. And so I think it was a lot of proving myself wrong more than anything. Yeah. And I think having this kind of year where it's like, wait a second, I can fucking do all this stuff that I like really doubted myself about for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it will be very pivotal for many years to come. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I take a lot less shit from a lot of people, I mm-hmm. think, because of it. Yeah. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Was also a painful journey to get there. (laughs) But ultimately, I think good. Yeah. This is unrelated to the question, but for listeners, I keep seeing on Instagram, you know, the horoscope Instagram people. I'm a Gemini. Maggie is a Taurus. And I keep getting these videos specifically about Gemini and Taurus. And that 2020, don't say that. Sorry. That 2024 is like a really pivotal year for both of those signs. Yeah, we're going to be like the luckiest sign of the year. Yeah. In every area of life. Yeah. Astrologically. It's kind of like a boss, a boss bitch year for those signs. So yeah. we both saw no that. pressure. We saw, we had been sending us, uh, sending each other those videos on Instagram. And then, yeah, we talked last night and we were both like, I feel a little stressed that yeah. all these opportunities seem to be coming our way. And I don't want to like fumble. Fumble the bag. <laughs> fumble the bag. Yeah. This could either make or break the rest of our lives. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Maggie. And I'm Sarah. And this is Mad Mad Woman Woman in the the Attic. Ho, 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 ho. Let's Let's go, girls. That was probably one of our best ones. Yeah, we really just needed a two week break. (laughs) Yeah, the two week break was powerful. It's really only been one week. Yeah. But we took a two week break from publishing. Publishing. And we're going to start working that into the schedule because we're just girls. We're just girls. Even if we are the luckiest signs of 2024. Yeah. We also, it seemed like a lot of people enjoyed the mini sewed. So Mm -hmm. we're going to start doing those every few episodes where Mm -hmm. it's. Not a story, just a discussion, maybe like 20, 30 minutes. Yeah. It's a little easier to listen to mm-hmm. and just like one discussion topic. Yeah. The, we talked about this last night. Let's talk New Year's resolutions. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> I have all the thoughts. Do you do New Year's resolutions? Why or why not? No. Because they're fucking stupid. <laughs> I tried. I Look, I feel like everybody who has especially gone through particularly severe mental illness 
goes through a phase where it's like the crystals and the <laughs> yoga and eight different planners and goal setting. Yeah. That was my grad school phase. And it was like this need to somehow control. Like yeah. if I write this down enough, if I think about it and want it enough, then I'll do it. Yeah. No. And so like the only thing that ended up happening was that I failed and then felt bad about it for yeah. the rest of the year. Then was like, oh, I'll just wait for next year and start over. And so I think the concept of resolutions in general, the way we as a culture typically goes about it is very broken because there are just so many studies that show that the majority of people fail to keep their resolutions. Mm -hmm. And there is a psychological factor to that. You start all at once at the beginning of a year. If you're looking at the beginning of the year as this time where it's like, this is the only time where I can really start these new habits. Right. That sets you up for like, if you fail, if you skip, then you're less likely to then start again within that same year. Right. And it's usually we're leaning too much into removing things from our yes. lives instead of adding things. Mm -hmm. People who say, I'm going to eat a vegetable with every meal are far more, far more likely to succeed with that goal than people who are like, I'm going to cut calories this amount right. every single week, or I'm not going to eat sweets. Right. And doing like an overhaul. Yeah. I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And it's like, mm -hmm. you're changing your entire life overnight. Yeah. So unrealistic. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that does work for some people, a cold turkey approach, if yeah. you're really having some very toxic whatever mm -hmm. behaviors in your life. Drinking is one of those things where right. it's like, even if you're not an alcoholic, if you're feeling like you're drinking too much or abusing alcohol, I think cutting it out cold turkey can be helpful, but mm -hmm. it's this overhaul, all or nothing mentality. Yeah. My dad actually has always talked about having buildable habits where mm -hmm. you just pick one thing, like eating a vegetable in every mm -hmm. meal and how that can build to other habits that mm -hmm. you don't have to pick out all at once. Right. It can just be like a really small habit where it's like, okay, I'm going to do this every day. And then mm -hmm. that can lead to more things that when you get to the end of the year, you'll mm -hmm. probably have made more consistent changes, mm -hmm. but you're not doing this mm -hmm. really extreme. Ugh. And yeah. I never do a takeaway. Mm -mm. Drinking is the only thing actually that I ever am just like, I'm going to cut that out for a month. Yeah. I think also the way we set resolutions tends to be all about betterment mm -hmm. and not let's add fun back into our lives. Yeah. I'm going to rest more. Yes. I see all these lists on Instagram and, you know, that people are putting together of the things they're going to do and the goals they're setting. And none of them are ever about leisure or rest. Mm -mm. And even if it's like read, which is why I stopped setting resolutions for how many books I was going to yeah. read because that's still doing something. Yeah. yeah. It ended up feeling terrible at the end of every year. Like yeah. just realizing that I had failed all these things again. I think new beginnings are important. I think resets are important. There are in particular weeks where I'm like, I'm going to let this week suck. Yeah. I'm going to not be productive. I need to chill. I need and to not pick a day and then to, be yeah. like, okay, Monday, you know, like we're starting, like you need downtime. But I think that is less about goal setting and habits and more about you probably just really needed some rest because you're burnt out because we are literally go, go, go all the time. Yeah. If we are building more new beginnings into our lives on a regular basis, yeah, weekly, monthly, quarterly, whatever that looks like. It's a little bit kind of woo-woo, but a lot of people do seasonally. There's a mm -hmm. lot of different spiritual practices that involve kind of a reset at every season, you know, mm -hmm. on the equinox or whatever. 
or solstice. If new beginnings are a way to help you feel motivated to make some changes, doing that more often throughout the year is important. And I think I read a study that was like, if you do set resolutions, people who start their New Year's resolutions in November or December and don't wait for January 1st are also a lot more likely to succeed because you are already building the habit by January 1st. You have given yourself time to build in the weeks where you're not gonna be doing well. You're gonna fail, you're gonna skip or forget or whatever the goal is. Yeah. So yeah, I say fuck resolutions. I think intentions are important. Yeah. Reevaluating your goals, your life. If your current life is aligning with what you want. I think it's more of an alignment thing than it is about I have found reflection Mm -hmm. to be more important than resolutions. Mm -hmm. A lot of times you get to the new year and people are looking ahead. Mm -hmm. What do I want to accomplish? What do I want to do? What what do I want to change? Mm -hmm. I have found it a lot more helpful over the last several years to look back. Three years ago, I started journaling in a Google Doc. Mm -hmm. And part of why I did that is because it's really easy to reread. I can search, Mm -hmm. especially like I often journal about what I'm reading at the time. And I can Mm -hmm. literally like search an author, search a book title. I can look up dates. I can go back and really hear myself, Mm -hmm. what I was thinking at the time. And it's always astounding to me how much you forget. Mm -hmm. You often remember what happened, but not necessarily how you felt about it at the time. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of times your feelings about things evolve as you process them. Mm -hmm. It has been really, really impactful for me to look back at the end of the year, or as you said, like more often than that, Mm -hmm. and really think through where was I at mentally, emotionally in that space? What was I doing differently? And learn. I'm a big fan of reflection. I do usually set goals is I feel like too strong of a word Mm -hmm. I do set intentions I usually my first journal entry of every year I'll sit down and really like think through Mm -hmm. at the end of this year what would make me really proud of myself I never do anything that's like unrealistic I don't really get itemized of like I want to work out this much or I want Mm -hmm. you know like I never do stuff like that it's Mm -hmm. always big picture yeah stuff I know like people always do smart goals I don't really do stuff like that Mm-hmm. those things often change based mm-hmm. on like what I'm needing in that season of life. But I often go back to that first journal entry of the year and have accomplished everything I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Or if I haven't, it's because my priorities change, yeah. which is, I think is totally okay. Mm-hmm. Like when you set your priorities, I think it's much easier to look back and say, well, I didn't accomplish that, but it's because I didn't need to anymore. Right. This year I had set my highest reading goal. I read so many books last year, Mm -hmm. like more than I ever have before because I was so lonely and depressed. I had set a high reading goal for me. It was like 20 books or something. I think I read two and a half, three and a half books Mm -hmm. this entire year. And I was like, yeah, I didn't have time to read because I was focused on making friends after I moved. And that's great. I think that was way more important. I won something that I got to meet with a life coach three times. I don't know. It was just some wellness thing. And so I met with this life coach person a few times and I'm in therapy. I don't, you know, whatever. So I didn't really expect to get much out of it, especially out of three sessions. Yeah. But life coaching tends to be more goal and future focused, Mm -hmm. I think, than therapy often is. And the one thing that I remember from that was talking about changing Yeah. I kind of was like trying to set a routine. I was trying to make sure I do something every day at this time. I don't remember what she said, but she was like, you can like change your plan based on what you need that day. That's always changing. And so I'm very much focusing more on like, what do I need today? Yeah. I could 
set the goal to eat really healthy yeah. if I can. But I know because of my mental health and history with eating disorders and all these things, most of the time, the most important thing is just that I eat something. Yes. And so I'm never, ever in my life going to set a goal again that is really anything more than maybe like have a vegetable a day. Yeah. My goal just in general, not just this year, is to just eat three meals if I can. Which is like, I think even when you're thinking through, okay, what three meals am I going to eat? Just the fact that you're being intentional about eating three meals. Right. I'm sure some of them will be healthier just because yeah. you're thinking about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that has been my experience at least. Like when I, yeah. I always try to focus on, am I eating? Mm-hmm. I won't eat until like two, sometimes four, mm-hmm. sometimes seven. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm terrible about it. Yeah. The times where I've been like, we're going to eat breakfast every day, yeah. even if it's just something little and Mm -hmm. dumb and easy it's like a bite of food yeah if it's just something small i always feel like i'm grocery shopping more consistently like i'm really Mm -hmm. committed to that yeah it's like those buildable little habits and ones that actually have a good impact on how you feel Ugh, the whole like you gotta wake up at four to be a winner i hate that fucking mindset I tried for no. a really long time and was successful at getting to the gym at 5, 5.30 yeah. for a long time when I first started working down here, when I first moved down here. Every single day I would get back home and I would like fall asleep in the shower. Yeah. And I'm trying to get up <laughs> and go. so dangerous. And it's like... Yeah, like I just, I, at some point I had to realize this works for some people and that's awesome. How did she awesome. die? She was just a sleepy girl. <laughs> that will be how I die. I'm <laughs> just going to be too tired. It just was mm. like, this doesn't work for me. This doesn't work for my circadian rhythms. This doesn't work yeah. for my body. I think especially focusing on not just like what you need on a day-to-day basis, but what works well for your body. Yeah. And your life. Important and your life. I feel like a lot of parents, that kind of schedule works for them because they get Mm -hmm. like an hour before their kids wake up and their kids go to bed early anyway. So they're going to bed early anyways. But Mm -hmm. if you have a more social life where you'd be missing out on things past 9 p.m. most nights, Mm -hmm. does that make sense? To like make your life really small? Mm -hmm. I was in a habit of that when I was younger around the same time. I was working out so much. I definitely sacrificed a lot of social stuff Mm -hmm. so that I could be in bed so that I'd have time to meal prep so that I was able to go to the gym and I missed a lot of social stuff because of it. Mm -hmm. And I was in redonkulous shape. Yeah. That whole experience has helped me a lot to have like perspective on Mm -hmm. working out now because I'm like, I looked about the same. Like, marginally different. (laughs) Yeah. I was so strong. I was, like, ripped. If I was, like, flexing my muscles right after I worked out, I looked ridiculous. But, like, in day-to-day, just, like, in my clothes, I literally looked the same Mm -hmm. as I do right now. And I Mm -hmm. eat Taco Bell all the time and go to the gym yeah. I, I'm just doing my best, yeah. you know? So the only difference was that my skin was mm-hmm. the clearest it's yeah. ever been in my life. And sometimes I look at those pictures and I'm like, man, Sarah, we could try a little harder. Mm-hmm. I do think there is a balance. I think it's pretty easy when you're really focusing on what do I need? What makes me feel good? Yeah. It can easily, at least it has for me, sometimes slipped into this isn't what Too ultimately sweet. feels good. Yeah. When I was working in yeah. office, waking up and going to the gym at five didn't feel good. It didn't do anything for my mental health. I was tired. I was cranky. Getting to the office earlier than everybody so I could leave earlier was good. Waking up at six now to go to the gym doesn't feel that great for me. Being up 
earlier in general. Yeah. A little bit later, 6.30, that feels good. And yeah. it's still hard to do. So I still think there are times where it's like, what makes you feel good might be still a challenge to do. Yeah. The feeling of it being a challenge doesn't mean that's not the same thing as, oh, this it's isn't right for me. It's bad for you. Yeah, yeah. I think like I also try to just give things time. Mm-hmm. I'm not of the mindset that quitting is always bad. Like mm-hmm. I think sometimes giving up a goal that isn't serving mm-hmm. you is like the best thing you can do. Yeah. But I do like to give things time because I think sometimes if you're changing your sleep schedule or if you're changing your Mm -hmm. routine or even if you're changing marginally your Mm -hmm. diet, your caffeine intake or Mm -hmm. your water intake, it can really change how you feel throughout your day, sometimes negatively until you adjust. Right. And so I always try to like give it a little time to be like, is this just an adjustment or is this Mm -hmm. just not right for me? And I am very fluid with my goals. Life is just too short to be hating my day to day. I know or the people I see on social media that set very like stereotypically rigid rigid resolutions at the beginning of the year are almost always the most stressed out overworked and generally unsatisfied with life people that I see. It creates this unnecessary disappointment in yourself. Mm -hmm. You can be doing so well. It's so odd to be like, I'm going to go to the gym six days a week or five days a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're going three days a week and you're feeling like a failure. Yeah. Yeah. Exercising three days a week. You're probably more active than you were Last year, mm-hmm. if that was your goal, yeah. that's good enough. There's no need to like feel like a failure. Mm-hmm. I think it was Rachel Hollis had in that one book something about like you never want to break a promise with yourself. And sometimes I'll like repeat that to myself. This is something that is good for me. This is something I need. I told mm-hmm. myself I was going to follow through on this for me. Like I need to do this. Mm-hmm. But is it breaking a promise with yourself That's or is it dramatic. honoring like, okay, I don't need to do this today. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be so rigid. I can trust that I know what I need. Mm-hmm in my day-to-day life. And also that we're just doing our best. Mm -hmm. It's like this idea that you're going to be in optimal performance mode. Right. (laughs) 365 days a year. And that Mm -hmm. is not realistic. There are years of my Mm -hmm. life where I have been pouring from an empty cup. Yeah. And it's like those years, you just have to do your best. And it's okay. Like that's a normal human experience. Right. I'm not the phase where my counselor has told me I need to buy paper plates because I cannot get myself to do dishes. The fact that I... Just now, when you walked in, ate a microwave craft mac and cheese and didn't get any dishes dirty that I'm going to have to wash later in the process. That, for me, right now, in this season, is a win. (laughs) I ate a breakfast bar. I ate some sort of lunch. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) My first therapist that I went to, the first session we had, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the goal we set for myself was to leave my house every day, even if it was just to walk outside for two minutes and walk back in, which is so crazy to look at my life now, (laughs) which I think would exhaust most people. (laughs) (laughs) I do think my lifestyle would exhaust like 95% of people because I really like just always want to do stuff. Mm -hmm. But I went through a season of my life where like I could not leave my house and... That was my goal was to leave my house yeah. and it was like go for a walk even if it's five minutes i 
literally had a Google calendar where I had blocked a time in the middle of my day to do an out of the house activity. I'm going to go to the thrift store today. I'm going to go grocery shopping today. Mm -hmm. I'm going to stand outside in the fresh air today. Mm -hmm. Basic like walk down and get your mail from the apartment office Mm -hmm. type stuff. Your Mm -hmm. needs change and not always in a progressive way. Yeah. There are times when you just go through a season where you need to go back to the basics more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hell yeah, brother. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like something that's really important for the public to know about me is that I call my dog brother in like a Hulk Hogan voice exclusively. Like if I call my dog to me, I go brother. (laughs) And sometimes I say my brother in Christ. (laughs) I do sometimes if he's just being like a little naughty, I'll be like my brother in Christ. Yeah. And then if he's being really bad, I'll be like, brother. (laughs) And sometimes it'll just come out. The worst is like if I have a man over and then I in my like Hulk Hogan voice say, brother. I'm like, that was not sexy. Sorry. (laughs) Ho, 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 ho. Story time. There are writers that captivate us with fantastical stories or draw us into imaginary worlds more intricate than reality. We root for their fictional characters that remind us of our friends, our moms, ourselves, maybe. And then there are writers who articulate the thoughts and feelings that have been buried within us, just under the surface, unspoken and ruminating. And when you read their words, it's like seeing your own reflection for the first time. We don't love these writers for their plot or their form or their craft. We love them because they show us that we are not alone in our solitary and unique experience as a human. I can't really explain why? But Virginia Woolf is this writer to me. Not because she's the greatest writer of all time, although I do think she's <laughs> fantabulous, <laughs> but because to me, she speaks my existence, my spirit, my truth. To me, she speaks life as it really is. And I've always been so curious about her life and her mind and her experiences. How did someone who lived a hundred years before me, right to my existence before I existed? How does she express things so purely that I struggle to express myself? And why is her life and work so often clouded by the nature of her death? That was amazing. Oh, good. That's yeah, good. great work. Great. I got chills. <laughs> you always say that. <laughs> You're yeah. a good writer. Thank <laughs> <laughs> uh, Beats head on table. <laughs> Adeline Virginia Stephen was born in London in 1882 to a wealthy, well-connected, intellectual, and a bit eccentric family. Her father, Sir Leslie Stephen, which we love a man named Leslie, was a Victorian literary critic, philosopher, biographer, and scholar. He was the first editor of the Dictionary of National Biography, and, this is a fun fact, was one of the most prominent figures of the golden age of mountaineering. So a little kooky bananas. A little kooky bananas. Yeah. And he had one child from a previous marriage, but his first wife died. And then Virginia's mother, Julia Jackson Duckworth, was born in (laughs) India. I know. To a well-to-do English family, she married into the Duckworth Publishing family, which offered her even more prominent social and artistic connections. She's a bit of a Nepo baby. Well, a little. They were wealthy, but they weren't like, fuck you wealthy. But like a smidge of a Nepo. Exactly. Yeah. And her mom worked as a model, a nurse, and a philanthropist throughout her life. She even wrote and published a book about nursing. And her first husband, Herbert Duckworth, which is a terrible last name. It is really bad, yeah. Sorry to any Duckworths out there in that audience. 
yes. <laughs> respectfully. And he passed away, leaving behind their three children. Both of Wolf's parents were widows. Mm-hmm. And after they married each other, Leslie and Julia had four more children together, totaling eight children together, including Virginia. She was mm-hmm. one of their children, obviously. So already Virginia's family was a bit unconventional for the time. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that they were wealthy, as we were saying. It's mm-hmm. that both of her parents were widows. They were both on their second marriages. They met through mutual friends. It said that they lived close to each other and may have like collaborated on some creative projects while they were friends. They were both from these families that weren't just wealthy, but they were very intellectual, very mm-hmm. artistic, well-connected, almost bohemian for the Mm -hmm. time. And they were both agnostic or atheist and humanist, which for the time period is pretty eccentric. And you can see how all of these things kind of like shape Mm -hmm. her life and also her writing. Mm -hmm. So Virginia was a writer from a young age, which I'm sure was influenced not only by her parents' work, but also by their friends and family connections. Mm -hmm. She really had access to some of like the great creative minds of the time, like the generation above her, and in very informal, casual settings where it's like her parents' friends. Virginia even started a newspaper when she was a kid called the Hyde Park Gate News, which was where their their house was, to document her family's humorous anecdotes. A little bougie. The family would summer in St. Ives at their beach home, which was called the Talent House. You know they're rich because their houses had, like, names. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot of imagery of the beach and the ocean and, like, her summer spent there throughout several of her books, including To the Lighthouse and The Waves. And I pulled a quote from the National Endowment for the Humanities, which says, Wolf had a genius for not only looking at a subject, but looking through it, teasing out inferences and implications at multiple levels. It's perhaps why the sea figures so prominently in her fiction as a metaphor for a world in which the bright currents we see at the surface of reality reveal upon closer inspection, a depth that goes downward for miles. And important to note, she was educated at home with her sisters Mm -hmm. in the family's lavish and extensive library until she attended King's College from 1897 to 1901. So she did attend college, but otherwise was educated at home. And while her at-home education was relatively competitive compared to like other people being Mm -hmm. educated at home. Her brothers all received formal education while all of the girls were educated in their home library. And that would definitely shape some of her feminist ideals, which really centered around women in education and Mm -hmm. the access that they had to schools, which were mostly gendered at the time. So her childhood, not bad. Not bad. However, she does experience several early traumas that start to shape her perspective and her writing. She actually didn't speak about this or write about this a lot in her early life. It was later it came out that two of her older half-brothers molested her when she Mm -hmm. was very, very young. When she first wrote about it, I think at the time, the reception was kind of mixed, but poor, Mm -hmm. where a lot of people didn't really believe her or even like understand the impact that would have that a lot of her mental health struggles later in life could be tied back to an experience as a child, even if it was only once. And there was also a lot of mixed feelings about at the time that a family member would do that, even though it is the most common way that that happens to children. Mm -hmm. So she wrote about it later in life and also had advocacy work around protecting kids, especially from abuse from 
family. Mm -hmm. And then there were several deaths in her family, which I'll get into a little bit later. First was her mother, Julia, who died of rheumatic fever in 1895 at the age of 49. And Wolf was only 13 years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And this is really when we start to see the beginnings of her lifelong struggle with depression. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a brief pause to talk about modernism. <laughs> so to understand Virginia Woolf, we first need to understand modern literature. And for anyone unfamiliar with modern lit, it's roughly like the early 1900s to 1940s. So it really lines up with Wolf's publishing dates. And she is considered to be like a pillar writer of modern mm-hmm. lit. But with any like literary period, the exact dates, first of all, you usually there aren't like exact dates and they're often less important than like the general time period and the themes. So Marianne Gillies notes that modernist literary themes share the centrality of a conscious break with the past, one that emerges as a complex response across continents and disciplines to a changing world. That's the definition you'll most often find for modernism, but it is a bit abstract (laughs) in my opinion, (laughs) respectfully. So what do we mean by a response to a changing world? Like the world is always changing and people are always responding to it, especially (laughs) in writing. So what does that mean? Modernism is really a direct response to industrialization, urbanization, and new technology of the time. So we find vital precursors to modernism in both psychology and philosophy of like the late 1800s to early 1900s, where we see a shift to more of an emphasis on the subjective human experience and the subconscious, especially in the works of like Freud, Jung, Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. So those were like a huge influence on modernism. And one of the biggest influences on modernism was the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Especially following the war, we see a much more cynical perspective, disillusionment, a shared mistrust of institutions of power, and a rejection of the notion of absolute truth all which are like staples of Mm -hmm. modernism. I always find it most interesting, like with any literary period, you see the shifts of modernism across the arts, which I think is so cool. Mm -hmm. Like in musical composition at the time, you see more dissonance, experimentation, atonal music. We also see more abstract visual art, like with cubism Mm -hmm. and even like architecture and dance. I like it, Picasso. Yes. Even like architecture and dance reflect the same like experimental avant-garde themes, Mm -hmm. which I always just think is cool that it's almost expressing those themes in like different, yeah, like different modes. Yeah. But they're all Mm -hmm. somehow saying the same things. So what does that look like in literature or in writing? With modernism, stream of consciousness is a common narrative style where the writer tries to capture the interior monologue of a character, often the protagonist, in a realistic way of what your actual (laughs) internal monologue would sound like. And it's characterized by free association, which is just free flow, looping repetitions, sensory observations, and strange unorthodox or even non-existent punctuation and syntax. And then another literary tool of modernism is the unreliable narrator, which is one of my favorites. It's so fun. (laughs) Yes. Which is when the narrator themselves is untrustworthy or their account of things should be taken with a grain of salt. Like Catcher in the Rye. Yes. Well, we see it most often in like first person where the narrator's account of events, it's presented to the reader as if it's absolute truth, but it's heavily subjective by like their experience of what's happening. So you kind of as the reader have to parse out, well, is that actually what happened Mm -hmm. or what actually happened? Sometimes what actually happened isn't 
what's most important because a lot of times with modernism, that subjective human experience is kind of the point. Mm -hmm. Because Wolf worked as a literary critic, we actually have her direct thoughts on what modern literature meant to her. In her essay, Modern Fiction, which is one of her most popular now, she says, the novelist has to have the courage to say that what interests him is no longer this, but that. Out of that alone must he construct his work. For the modern that, the point of interest, lies very likely in the dark places of psychology. At once, therefore, the accent falls a little differently. The emphasis is upon something hitherto ignored. At once a different outline of form becomes necessary, difficult for us to grasp, incomprehensible to our predecessors. So that was her thoughts on the shift to a more psychological focus and Mm -hmm. specifically like a cynical psychological Mm -hmm. focus. Man, I missed lit classes. I know. (laughs) Even though this was the most time I've spent on my research and Mm -hmm. probably the hardest one, I did have a lot of fun. Yeah. I pulled out my old Norton anthology. Mm -hmm. I did briefly have a moment of maybe I should read a section of my Norton anthology every day this year. And then I was like, stop it. Slap myself. (laughs) Because it's it's the new year. I have to. New year, not me. (laughs) 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 I'm going to read the Norton anthology. (laughs) Back to Wolf. So like shortly after she graduates college, she's an early adult. Her father died. Several of the Wolf siblings sell their family home and then purchase a house in Bloomsbury, which is in London. Virginia starts socializing with what's called the Bloomsbury Group, which was a circle of intellectuals and artists, including the art critic Clive Bell, who married Virginia's sister Vanessa, the novelist E.M. Forster, the painter Duncan Grant, the biographer Lytton, Lytton, Strachey, economist John Maynard Keynes, and essayist Leonard Wolf, among others. Leonard Wolf becomes Virginia's husband, right. if you couldn't figure that one Surmise. out yourself. And the members denied being like a group in any formal sense of the word. Mm. They were like, no, we're not a gang. Click. <laughs> We're not a gang, we're just friends. But they were made up of like close friends, married couples, partnerships, and family connections. They all had strong ties to the University of Cambridge. Many of the men had gone to the University of Cambridge and the women had gone to King's College London. And they lived, worked, studied together near Bloomsbury. So a lot of them were creatives. They live in the same neighborhood. Kind of reminds me of us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And spent a lot of time together socializing. Mm -hmm. They were all really close. Us, but fancier. I imagine them, they probably weren't always dressed up, but I imagine them dressing up. Being a little fancy. Yeah, Yeah. And smoking a lot. Yeah, probably. I feel like they all had hats <laughs> like know? nice ones but not inside but hats <laughs> yeah not like my baseball hat that I'm wearing right now yeah which is because my hair was crazy mm-hmm. <laughs> um <laughs> it's hard to say whether the Bloomsbury group influenced Wolf's work or Wolf influenced the group more but they shared many ideals around philosophy society politics art they were heavily influenced by the philosopher G.E. Moore specifically his statement that one's prime objects in life were love, the creation and enjoyment of aesthetic experience, and the pursuit of knowledge. And for both Moore and the Bloomsbury Group, there was an emphasis on the importance of personal relationships in the private life, as well as aesthetic appreciation or art for art's sake. The group also shared political beliefs that 
were generally liberal. Uh, they were anti-military, pro-women's rights, pro-suffrage. A lot of their suffrage activism was spearheaded in large part by Wolf. And the group, importantly, shared a rejection for Victorian society, which is like the generation of their parents. Yeah. Instead, embracing the pursuit of pleasure. So you see like pleasure as a very important, yes. you know, goal of theirs. Yeah. But they shared a sophisticated, civilized, and highly articulated ideal of pleasure. So they're like, we're not barbarians. Yeah. <laughs> but um, we do have orgies. <laughs> <laughs> well... I imagine they did. I feel like they did. Yeah. Wolf once said, their triumph is in having worked out a view of life which was not by any means corrupt or sinister or merely intellectual, rather ascetic and austere indeed, which still holds and keeps them dining together and staying together after 20 years. I didn't put this in my notes, but... She like repeatedly emphasized the importance of dining. Like, like, like there's yeah. a quote from her that's like, you can't, I'm going to completely botch it, but it's something about like, you can't enjoy love. You can't enjoy life without first enjoying a good meal. I love that. <laughs> yeah. That's how I imagine them is dressed up around a dinner table. Yeah. It's kind of like fancy indulgence. Mm-hmm. It's not this complete like base yeah. Experience. The roaring 20s kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of Wolf's work that I've read, I feel like the Bloomsbury gr- group is most reflected in The Waves, which I read a few years ago. And it's about basically like a group of friends. It's told in stream of conscious from each of their perspectives. It's not like you start a new chapter and it says Ginny mm-hmm. <laughs> at the top and is like, this is Ginny's chapter. Yeah. It flows from one person's perspective to the other. And as you read, you learn who's speaking based on who they're talking to and what their voice is mm-hmm. and what they're preoccupied about. It tells the story of this group of friends over the course of their lives. It starts when they're children and then it ends when they're old. Mm-hmm. And it often depicts them dining together, enjoying each other's company. Sometimes they fall in love with each other one of them dies and they're aging and they're going through all of this like now so-and-so has kids or so-and-so has passed away and that evolution of a friend group Mm -hmm. and I feel like it was probably pulled a lot from the Bloomsbury group and I pulled a a couple of quotes that I liked from the waves about friendship. The first, I can't remember which character is saying this. It was a very unique perspective of being in a friend group that I just related to a lot and loved. And it says, but since I wish above all things to have lodgement, I pretend as I go upstairs, lagging behind Ginny and Susan to have an end in view. I pull on my stockings as I see them pull on theirs. I wait for you to speak and then speak like you. I am drawn here across London to a particular spot, to a particular place, not to see you or you or you, but to light my fire at the general blaze of you who live wholly, indivisibly, and without caring in the moment. I thought that was a cool depiction of what a more quiet or introverted person in a friend group gets out of having groups of friends where you're kind of feeding off their energy or like living almost vicariously through them, even if you feel a little disconnected from it in the moment. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's another quote, which was from one of the characters, Bernard, more towards the end of the book where he's older. This is a more like famous quote from this book. It says, I went from one to the other holding my sorrow. No, not my sorrow, but the incomprehensible nature of this, our life for their inspection. Some people go to priests, others to poetry I to my friends, I to my own heart, I to see, seek among phrases and fragments something unbroken, I to whom there is no beauty enough in moon or tree, to whom the touch of one person with another is all, yet who cannot grasp even that, who am so imperfect, so weak, 
so unspeakably lonely. I think you would really like that book. I feel like everyone reads Mrs. Dalloway as like a first. I loved The Waves, but it was difficult to get through. It's a little confusing. So at the time, for that time period, the Bloomsbury Group had a little bit of a bohemian sensibility, Mm -hmm. including their view on romantic relationships, gender, and sexuality. As we said in our our early assumption that they may or may may not have have orgies. So there were suspicions that many of the members held unconventional marriages, having affairs, swinging, or possibly Mm -hmm. practicing the early 1900s version of ethical non-monogamy, polyamory. Mm -hmm. There isn't like a ton of documentation of this, but there is some. Virginia, as we said, married essayist Leonard Wolfe in August of 1912. So he was already in the Bloomsbury group. They were friends. Interestingly enough, one of the sources I read, they played this prank that I didn't quite understand it was like they disguised themselves and lied about who they were so they could see a ship or something and it was like this practical joke i don't know apparently that brought leonard and virginia together (laughs) (laughs) and leonard was described in a few sources as being androgynous Mm. and possibly also like a lot of the people in this group that seemed to have open marriages it seemed like both parties were queer Mm -hmm. and open to exploring that on both ends. It seemed like Leonard could have also possibly been queer, but I don't think we have the same documentation of his relationships that we have from Virginia's journals. Mm -hmm. So while we can't know for sure, it seems as though Wolf and her husband practiced ethical non-monogamy. There's a lot of opinions about their relationship and there's really no way to know Mm -mm. for sure. Wolf was bisexual and had several affairs with women while she was married to Leonard, but it's said that they continued to be very close throughout their marriage and that Leonard was like a huge supporter of her writing and of her mental illness. Like he was really uh, like grounding force for Mm -hmm. her and she writes about that in her journals Mm -hmm. that he was just like a very important partner and companion to her in her life Mm -hmm. and that they did really love each other but she also like openly had affairs so it's not totally clear what how he felt about it right Vita Sackville West was one of Wolf's longest and most ardent affairs Vita was 10 years younger than Wolf and a popular writer in her own right. She was by far more successful at the time. She is not remembered in that that way now. She didn't yeah. she didn't have like an enduring Staying impact. Power, yeah. But as a popular writer at the time, she was very successful in like a contemporary sense. Mm-hmm. Both Wolf and Vita, they wrote like hundreds of letters to each other that we have that are like public, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is wild. They both seemed to know that like Wolf was by far the better writer. And it seemed like there was maybe like some admiration, but also maybe a little tension mm-hmm. in that Vita was more successful. She was younger. She wasn't as really good of a writer. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which is why we know Wolf now and we right. don't really read a lot of Vita's mm-hmm. work at the time. It seemed through their letters that Wolf wasn't jealous of Vita's writing, but maybe her no success. Variety, yeah. yeah. And according to Time, although both were married to men, the two women penned hundreds of poetic letters to each other, and their relationship would inspire one of Wolf's most celebrated works, the 1928 novel Orlando, which I also have read. You would love Orlando. <laughs> so their relationship was clearly a source of inspiration for both of their work, but Orlando would really cement Wolf 
Woolf's status as an established writer and her legacy as a master of modernism. It spans over 300 years. The novel features a protagonist who switches gender in a fantastical exploration of the self and the other. Mm -hmm. The book was described as the longest and most charming love letter in literature by Vita's son, Nigel Nicholson. Others have called it the first trans novel in the English language. And so the character Orlando, who it's Orlando's life over 300 years, Mm -hmm. they switch gender, they switch sexuality, and it's based on Vita. Interesting. Wolf asked Vita's permission, but I remember reading because I was like, I wonder how she felt about it. Yeah. Because at the time everyone knew it was about her. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was very clearly about her life. Like there were, mm-hmm. there's clear ties where Orlando can't inherit property when Orlando is female and Vita couldn't inherit her family's property. Mm, yeah. And it was like this huge issue for her where she couldn't inherit property and had to marry. And mm-hmm. even though she was born very wealthy. And so there was like very clear ties that it was about mm-hmm. her And their relationship wasn't necessarily, like, secret. So, like, when it was published, part of the reason that it was very popular at the time was because people knew it was about Vita. Right. And they wanted to read it to see what it said. Mm -hmm. So it seems like she initially, like, gave permission and was excited to be, like, a muse. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, like, they ended their relationship around the time of it being published. And it seemed like Vita had not great feelings about it after the fact. Mm. And I imagine that it just being very queer and controversial at the time and being centered around her could have been like very difficult. Yeah. And I pulled one quote from Orlando that I love that says, a woman knows very well that though a wit sends her his poems, praises her judgment, solicits her criticism and drinks her tea, this by no means signifies that he respects her opinion, admires her understanding or will refuse though the rapier is denied him to run through the body with his pen. I loved that book. (laughs) It has so many just like scathing takes on men, even though the character is male at the very beginning. Yeah. And it's just like a wild ride. A lot of times we talk about her mental illness, which I'm going to get into now, Mm -hmm. but one of her most interesting qualities is that she was queer Mm -hmm. openly Mm -hmm. at a time when it was illegal to be gay as a man mm-hmm. at this time. And there was actually legislation introduced during her lifetime that attempted to make it illegal to be gay as a woman, but there wasn't specifically legislation hmm. for lesbians, at least in England. Because they didn't exist, Sarah. They were just roommates. Exactly. But because she was openly queer, yeah. and they have so much documentation through their letters and through their writing of like the sexual nature of their relationship mm-hmm. that they clearly were not hiding, I just think it's very cool. I guess, like that they weren't really hiding it. I think probably part of that came from her upbringing, Mm -hmm. that she was in this very bohemian kind of piece of society where you would be much more accepted by at least your immediate surroundings. Mm -hmm. And also that she was wealthy Mm -hmm. and probably wouldn't have the consequences maybe of someone who wasn't. Yeah, I'm realizing I really knew nothing about her. I learned a lot from the research. I didn't know a ton about her personal life. Yeah. Except for like, she was gay and mentally ill. I didn't even know she was gay. You didn't? No. But I had a Christian literary education. Yeah, that's (laughs) true. I was reading that the biographer who like wrote her biography and did a ton of research on her life Mm -hmm. once said that she would be very nervous to meet her in real life. 
she's like, I just feel like she's one of those people where you would be very intimidated by her intellect. Yeah. And she was not one to like make you feel comfortable in being dumber than her. But most people were, you know, like she had that air about her that was like, you'd be nervous to be in her presence, you know. And I feel like she even in pictures comes off that way. Mm -hmm. And it was even said like most of the pictures of her are her profile, like her jawline. She has Mm -hmm. a very pronounced jawline. There's Mm -hmm. one picture that's a different angle that she probably felt like was her bad side. And she like hated that picture, even though it's like the most accurate picture of her face. Is it one of these? I don't know which one it was, but I thought it was funny that all her professional portraits are the same angle. Yeah. She was just like, um, this is my good side. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we can't talk about Virginia Woolf without mentioning her mental illness, which Mm -hmm. is often the focus when studying both her writing and her life. Mm -hmm. In her early life, as we said in the introduction portion, Woolf experiences a series of traumas, including sexual abuse from her older half-brothers, and then a series of losses. So it starts with her mother in 1895 her mom dies when she's only 13 she has like a significant depressive episode after her mom dies and then only one year later i think it was through like letters she wrote letters to her siblings Mm -hmm. her tone had finally started to kind of like pick up a little after Mm -hmm. her mom's death and then her half-sister stella died very young at the age of 28 and that was just like the double whammy that she like couldn't really come back from Mm -hmm. And that was in 1897. So this is when she's like getting into college. She graduates college, I think, in 1901. And in 1904, her father dies of cancer. And she was briefly institutionalized after her dad died and had a significant depressive episode. She attempted suicide earlier in life. And I can't remember if it was around that time or if she was, that's why she was institutionalized. Mm -hmm. But it's the first documentation of her like receiving medical treatment for her depression. And I have a quote from one of my sources that says, Virginia was a manic depressive, but at the time the illness had not yet been identified and could Mm -hmm. not be treated. And this is from one of her biographers, their last name is Reed. And they went on to say, for her, a normal mood of excitement or depression would become inexplicably magnified so that she could no longer find her sane, balanced self. And you see these waves in her journals like throughout her life. Interesting that she called one of her novels The Waves. So she would be diagnosed bipolar. Yeah. Bipolar gang. Woop woop. Yeah. So do we talk so much about Wolf's mental illness because she was a woman? This is something I've thought about a lot. Studying her because I feel like there were equally as mentally ill male writers at the time that it wasn't as huge of an emphasis. Mm -hmm. Was it because she was kind of like problematic or unconventional that it's like, oh, she was crazy, you know? Yeah. And I think that's partly true. I also think it's because we have access to her journals and her letters. She just wrote so much personally Mm -hmm. in addition to her professional publications. So we have like a detailed, you know, depiction of her struggles with depression. You see it in her published work, but I pulled two excerpts from her journals that have been published, is that she talks about depression, but also the very small pleasures of day-to-day life in such a beautiful way Mm -hmm. in her journals. One of the journal entries I pulled was during a depressive episode of hers. It says, but it is always a question whether I wish to avoid these glooms. These nine weeks give one a plunge into deep waters. One goes down into the well and nothing protects one from the assault of truth. In another journal entry, she says, we sit over the fire waiting for the post, the cream of the day, I think. Yet every part of the day here has its merits. We tend our fire, cook coffee, read. I find, luxuriously, 
peacefully at length. You know, so she has this real dichotomy in her journals of being in the depths. Yeah. <laughs> and also noticing the small kind of beautiful parts of life, mm-hmm. which I just always connected to a lot. And it's said that writing was like her biggest outlet from her de- depression and I feel like understanding bipolar, I can see how she would become almost manic when working on a project and then she would have like her most severe bouts of depression immediately after finishing a book. Mm -hmm. And she actually wrote in her journal, the only way I keep afloat is by working. Directly I stop working, I feel that I am sinking down, down. And as usual, I feel that if I sink further, I shall reach the truth. Ouchie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And as we touched on earlier, Leonard was her biggest support system, both in her work and in her personal life. Mm -hmm. And there were definitely like differing opinions on the nature of their relationship. Some think that he was very controlling, that it was just like an arrangement, that their marriage was superficial or that they were just friends or that they were just business partners, like they owned a printing press together. It's kind of like up for debate how it actually was in their day-to-day life. But she, in the excerpt where she's talking about like their little, the little merits of every day, she often is talking about them doing those things together, like passing the days together very peacefully Mm -hmm. and that they just kind of were a very true sense of companionship Mm -hmm. that, I don't know, I think was very beautiful that they had that together. Yeah. She did at the age of 59 commit suicide by walking into the river Ouse with stones in her pocket. So she drowned herself. Obviously, she struggled with depression her whole life. It wasn't necessarily a shock, but it is thought that around the time she died, World War II was looming. Mm -hmm. It seemed like that was what pushed her to this state of like instability, especially because her early life was World War One, and that was right. such a like foundational experience. I have read before that like with the World Wars when they happened, it just felt like the end of the world. And so having a second one was like that repeat yeah. experience of like, well, this is it. The, yeah. the world is ending. And that she just kind of took matters into her own hands in a sense but Mm -hmm. we can't really know i think we really underestimate the impact that like global events have on us as individuals you know with social media we're all talking about collective trauma and stuff like that it's not that i don't think people think it's not real it's more like i don't feel like people realize that it's something that would push someone to do something yeah that drastic like that it can have that much of an impact especially if you're in your own life doing so poorly and then you pile that on top it can be devastating we saw that with covid yeah i think it was partly isolation but i think it's also this feeling of the world is changing negatively Mm -hmm. and it really removes the hope that often like is the last tether Mm -hmm. when you're very mentally ill that like things could get better that there's still good in the world even if it's not immediately around you this big scary looming sense of things are going to get worse and just keep getting worse can be absolutely like a breaking point for people and I feel like at that point was a time where it really started becoming you're aware of global issues and even yeah. more so now because there are so many things we would never hear about yeah. if we didn't have the internet and social media. But like, I feel like the world wars were world wars. It was yeah. like just first, imagery. but a huge thing. Yeah. Like we see videos on social media. Mm-hmm. It's so different than reading about it. Yeah. And you're also often reading... after it's already resolved itself. If it's like yeah. a shorter conflict or something. Social media, I think is crazy because you're 
you're seeing people, individual people posting about these experiences mm -hmm. and you're feeling so personally connected mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. It's like almost too much yeah. to take. Biologically, our nervous systems yes. were not meant to, like, I know that a lot of people say that it's kind of a woo-woo self-care kind of phrase where it's like, you weren't meant to like know all this stuff. But literally our nervous systems did yeah. not evolve. Our brains did not evolve to be able to handle that type of personal and like existential yeah. conflict mm -hmm. from people all, the time. all over the world all the Every time. Every day. The things that I read that were saying it might have been this anxiety or disillusionment with the Second World War that kind of pushed her over the edge. There is this sense of I'm not going to let death find me. It's sad. Mm -hmm. And like devastating, but also putting it in your own hands and your own timing. Oh, and one final note on her marriage to Leonard. She, they never had children and she wanted children. Mm -hmm. And he actually was the one who said no. And it was because he felt like she wasn't stable enough to be a mother. Oof. And I think that's where a lot of the narrative around him being controlling was. And I feel kind of like mixed about it where I think you can be bipolar and you can be mentally ill and be a good parent. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was interesting that her partner was like, I think this would be too much for you. And that she was such a feminist and such an outspoken spoken woman and that like the, such a huge choice in her mm -hmm. life was dictated. I mean it's a joint decision right. so it's not like he made it for her he made it for mm -hmm. them as a you know it's a joint decision for anyone but I thought that was interesting mm -hmm. so her impact on literature so the wolves together Leonard and Virginia founded Hogarth Press in 1917 and if Virginia Woolf had never published a single word of her own her role as a publisher would have secured her a place in literary history thanks to their printing press. They published some of the first works of Catherine Mansfield, T.S. Eliot, and Forster. And they also published a lot of mm -hmm. uh, Vita Sackville-West's yeah. work. And Virginia Woolf, obviously, right. was self-published. She had a huge impact just in that space. Mm -hmm. But Woolf's impact on modern literature is undeniable in her writing, not mm -hmm. only as a writer and now as a publisher, but also mm -hmm. as a critic. In 1905, so this was like shortly after she graduated college, she mm -hmm. began contributing to the Time Literary Supplement. And I actually, when I was prepping for this episode, I listened to an episode of the History of Literature podcast. Mm. Shout out to them if you've never listened. They're Awesome. They have hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Wow. He did an episode specifically on her essay, Modern Fiction. And uh, one of the things they said was that like sh when she was writing her criticism, it, it's like criticizing contemporary writers. Mm -hmm. She probably never thought that we would be reading it today. And yeah. people pick it apart in the podcast episode I listened to. He had on a guest who was teaching a whole course just on that essay. Mm-hmm. And people just dig into her essays and her criticism. And it's funny, like, she probably never thought that people would be reading those, mm -hmm. like, after they were published, let alone 100 years later, mm -hmm. which I think is so wild because it was just her job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it would be like people listening to our podcast episodes 100 years from now and, like, picking every little word we say apart. Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah, if you're doing that now, fuck you. We'd be like, we're just girls. We're just girls. Leave us alone. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That's because we didn't think about it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's because we're just shit talking. Yeah. I pulled a very long excerpt, mm -hmm. so bear with me, Okay. from her essay, Modern Fiction, mm -hmm. which I think really captures her thoughts on like what 
modern lit should do. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what eventually was her impact. So she says, admitting the vagueness which afflicts all criticism of novels, let us hazard the opinion that for us at this moment, the form of fiction most in vogue more often misses than seizes the thing we seek. Whether we call it life or spirit, truth or reality, this, the essential thing, has moved off or on and refuses to be contained any longer in such ill-fitting vestments as we provide. Nevertheless, we go on perseveringly, conscientiously constructing our two and thirty chapters after a design which more and more ceases to resemble the vision in our minds. So much of the enormous labor of proving the solidity, the likeness to life of the story is not merely labor thrown away, but labor misplaced to the extent of obscuring and blotting out the light of the conception. The writer seems constrained, not by his own free will, but by some powerful and unscrupulous tyrant who has him in to provide a plot, to provide comedy, tragedy, love, interest, and an air of probability embalming the whole so impeccable that if all his figures were to come to life, they would find themselves dressed down to the last button of their coats in the fashion of the hour. The tyrant is obeyed. The novel is done to a turn. But sometimes, more and more often as time goes by, we suspect a momentary doubt a spasm of rebellion, as the pages fill themselves in the customary way. Is life like this? Must novels be like this? Look within, and life, it seems, is very far from being like this. Examine for a moment an ordinary mind on an ordinary day. The mind receives a myriad impressions, trivial, fantastic, evanescent, or engraved with the sharpness of steel. From all sides they come, an incessant shower of innumerable atoms, and they fall as they shape themselves into the life of Monday or Tuesday, here but there, so that if a writer were a free man and not a slave, he could write what he chose, not what he must. If he could base his work upon his own feeling and not upon convention, there would be no plot, no comedy, no tragedy, no love interest or catastrophe in the accepted style, and perhaps not a single button sewn on as the Bond Street tailors would have it. Life is not a series of gig lamps symmetrically arranged. Life is a luminous halo, a semi-transparent envelope surrounding us from the beginning of consciousness to the end. Is it not the task of the novelist to convey this varying, this unknown and uncircumscribed spirit, whatever aberration of complexity it may display, with as little mixture of the alien and external as possible. We are not pleading merely for courage and sincerity. We are suggesting that the proper stuff of fiction is a little other than custom would have us believe. So she really mm -hmm. was pulling apart not just specific writers in this mm -hmm. essay, but they're kind of doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And is it missing the mark in some way? When you read her fiction, it is very stream of conscious. Mm -hmm. It is loosey-goosey. She goes off on tangents. and mm -hmm. But it also hits, for me at least, these very human experiences mm -hmm. so well. And I think that was part of what made her so incredible. But I love to read her talking about it in this sense. Is plot the most important thing? Which I think it became just the defining thing between genre and literary fiction, both of which have their mm -hmm. merits, as we've discussed before. But that was always kind of the most basic way to separate the two is it yeah. is it plot focused or is it character focused right and i think it's interesting that she dated basically like a pop writer yeah. at the time mm -hmm. and that that was like where the tension in their relationship came from yeah because she might have seen that as base but clearly also admired her 
Yeah. We're still talking about her impact. Virginia Woolf was one of the most distinctive writers of English literature using the stream of consciousness technique. We talked about what it is, but I did have like a little example from Mrs. Dalloway. It says, for having lived in Westminster, how many years now? Over 20. One feels even in the midst of the traffic or waking at night, Clarissa was positive, a particular hush or solemnity, an indescribable pause, a suspense, but that might be her heart affected by, they said, by influenza. Before Big Ben strikes, there, out it boomed, first a warning, musical, then the hour, irrevocable. So it's how many years now? You don't mm-hmm. need to say that. Yeah, the normal <laughs> yeah. thoughts that interrupt your own. Right, like how you actually think of things. Consistently you... interrupting yourself all day long. Yeah. yeah, and you can't like hear the punctuation. Mm-hmm. But she has very like messy I punctuation, love punctuation in her writing. Yeah. Like her commas are all over the place in everything, even in her criticism. Yeah. And then I also, so Michael Cunningham, you actually gifted me his book, mm-hmm. The Hours, which is, I think, quite literally based on Mrs. Dalloway. There's also a movie of The Hours. And Michael Cunningham, he described her writing in such an interesting way. He said, I could see, even as an untutored and rather lazy child, the density and symmetry and muscularity of Wolf's sentences. I thought, wow, she was doing with language something like what Jimi Hendrix does with a guitar, by which I meant she walked a line between chaos and order. She riffed. And just when it seemed that a sentence was veering off into randomness, she brought it back and united it with the melody. Beautifully said. Yeah. And I think exactly what she does, Mm -hmm. where a lot of the criticism of her criticism is that she'll go off on these tangents. She sways from being scathing. She will say stuff that's like, oh, oh, shit. (laughs) Like, say say what you really think, Virginia. But then she also has like a much more like questioning approach to criticism than a lot of her male contemporary critics who would be like it's this way she's like asking more questions about things mm-hmm. than actually being like this is good or this is bad and here's yeah. why and i think perhaps her greatest contribution to literature and to the world was her work in encouraging and educating female writers the first thing i read on my own recreationally was a room of one's own and i read it at a very mm-hmm. pivotal time i think i was like 26 or 27 i had just started my own freelance writing business i was very much struggling with i'm a professional writer, but I'm not really writing what I want to write. Mm -hmm. I was struggling with that emotionally. And I read A Room of One's Own. It's based on two lectures that she gave at women's colleges. Mm -hmm. There are portions of it that are almost like a call to arms. And I pulled two quotes from the last sections that I will close with. Mm -hmm. The first says, so long as you write what you wish to write, that is all that matters. And whether it matters for ages or only for hours, nobody can say. But to sacrifice a hair of the head of your vision, a shade of its color, in deference to some headmaster with a silver pot in his hand, or to some professor with a measuring rod up his sleeve, is the most abject treachery. Treachery. (laughs) And she was very critical of education systems Mm -hmm. that mostly served not just male students, but a predominantly male literary canon where you're only studying men yeah and you're only studying with men and your only teachers are men yeah. and it's just so male centric mm-hmm. and then the closing paragraphs of a room of one's own are really like the call to arms piece of it that was directed at these women she was speaking to mm-hmm. and she says I told you in the course of this paper that Shakespeare had a sister, but do not look for her in Sir Sidney Lee's life of the poet she died young alas she never wrote a word. 
She lies buried where the omnibuses now stop, opposite the elephant and castle. Now my belief is that this poet, who never wrote a word and was buried at the crossroads, still lives. She lives in you and in me and in many other women who are not here tonight for they are washing up the dishes and putting the children to bed. I will cry while reading this. I'm already starting. I always do. But she lives, for great poets do not die. They are continuing presences. They need only the opportunity to walk among us in the flesh. This opportunity, as I think, it is now coming within your power to give her. For my belief is that if we live another century or so, I am talking of the common life, which is the real life, and not of the little separate lives which we live as individuals. And we have 500 a year, each of us, in a room of our own. If we have the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think, if we escape a little from the common sitting room and see human beings not always in their relation to each other, but in relation to reality, and the sky too, and the trees or whatever it may be in themselves, if we look past Milton's bogey for no human being should shut out the view, if we face the fact, for it is a fact, that there is no arm to cling to, but that we go alone, and that our relation is to the world of reality, and not only to the world of men and women, then the opportunity will come, and the dead poet who was Shakespeare's sister will put on the body which she has so often laid down." drawing her life from the lives of the unknown who were her forerunners as her brother did before her she will be born as for her coming with that without that preparation without that effort on our part without that determination that when she is born again she shall find it possible to live and write her poetry that we cannot expect for that would be impossible but i maintain that she would come if we worked for her and that so to work, even in poverty and obscurity, is worthwhile. I didn't think I was going to cry, but that last line made me, made my eyeballs sting. That was like a profound work for me because mm-hmm. it was like, on the one hand, she's saying you need income, a private space to think in order to create, mm-hmm. which I think is true. And in some sense, an independence of self. But that on the other hand, like most people might not have that, and especially women might not have that, and that to work for the future generation to have it, which is us, like the generation she's talking about is 100 years from then, which is our generation. (laughs) And it does make me emotional because it's like the work she did, we do have more freedom to write what we think and to say what we mean and to be educated in co-ed schools by female professors and to study female writers that she didn't have, it does matter. She wasn't super famous. Orlando was one of her later works, and I think it was the first one that had any notoriety at the time beyond like her critical work. And a lot of people like didn't quite understand her writing Mm -hmm. at the time, but she's become so well-respected now, widely studied. Mm -hmm. And she did pave the way for female writers. And I just loved the way she approached it and that she was speaking to a room of female students saying, we might be moms and we might be taking care of house. And Jane Austen is a great example of that. Mm -hmm. That was her. And Mm -hmm. she wrote at night little pages at her kitchen table, you know, some of like the most important literary works in the canon. Mm -hmm. So anyways, so what do you think women need in order to write or to create art? I mean, I do like with the money, I do think there is like a huge amount of privilege in the ability to write easily. Yeah. At least. So my next question ties into, does someone need a college education? No. As someone with a creative writing MFA, no. (laughs) But I also think, is there the sense of community, the sense of inspiration that can ignite things for you 
in a classroom setting to make you better. Yes. I don't think you need a college education to be mm-hmm. good at anything. But mm-hmm. except and, maybe like being a doctor. <laughs> Those <kinds> sure. <laughs> but I, I do think we have so much more access to learn things online now. Mm-hmm. Where if you didn't have that access, an education would be really important. Yeah. Like if you couldn't just learn things on the internet mm-hmm. or go to the local library, there is like this igniting of excitement even Mm -hmm. even that little thing yeah i mean when i started writing i remember having a few friends i think one in particular who was also a writer there was a level of camaraderie and community and inspiration that came from those people Mm -hmm. and i like look back and that's like they weren't necessarily my best friends or not people i still really talk to at all but i don't know if that would have turned it from a, I got to keep track of this story in my head to yeah. maybe I should actually yeah. do this. For me, I also had the privilege of a family that is artistic, creative, yeah. and has encouraged me to pursue that. Yeah. Um, I've thought about that because when you talk about your childhood, I feel like that was a huge influence on you that mm-hmm. your parents are both really creative people. Mm-hmm. I feel like my parents really encouraged me to be creative. I would say like my mom is a really creative person. My dad is too, but in like a different way. My dad mm-hmm. is a really good writer, but neither of them were nurtured in those areas. So I feel like they had the desire, but not necessarily the example to me of what that looks like. I was a big reader when I was young. I was really into reading and I would sometimes like journal, but I don't think I had examples around me of what does that look like? And I remember like we had talked before I submitted my first essay to get published. We had talked about that process and I have one other friend, Erica, who's been published several times. And I think it was like when I had that example of like what that looks like and that even the knowledge that that's a possibility Mm -hmm. of something I could do. Yeah. Then I did it, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think there are people who are like the (laughs) pavers of the way who Mm -hmm. don't need to see it first. Mm -hmm. But I think to me, it wasn't even something I really even had an image of what that looks like. Mm -hmm. I also had the desire, but not really the steps (laughs) until I was older. I think that's why it's hardest for the first generation of women that do anything. You only have seen the male example of something. Mm -hmm. To be the first, I Mm -hmm. think is way harder because you don't have the steps. Yeah, expanding it to art in general. As women in particular, traditionally female art forms have often been relegated to the idea of a craft. And Mm -hmm. I don't remember what I saw. It was some, you know, Tumblr post that someone was writing about, oh, there's no women artists in my family. But then they look at the quilt that someone put together. They look at the clothes that their their grandma sewed. They looked at the dollhouse that their, you know, grandma made custom upholstery on the little furniture for. Mm -hmm. My grandma wrote some poetry. And I didn't ever know that about her really yeah. until I think I saw a couple cards, you know, that she had, you know, written some poetry on or something. And my mom is really artistic. She, you're listening. I know she says she's not, but you know, she's been doing painting classes with Riley and she's really, really good. Yeah. And so I think just in general, 
It's like people look at women doing art and they're like, oh, what a cute hobby. Yeah. My and mom, so then it like just stays as a hobby. You don't yeah. c- cultivate it. You don't say like, oh, I can go and I can make something out of this or I can present this to somebody else as art. Yeah. It also leads the women to be like, I made this quilt. Right. It was a cute craft. And it's like, that's art. Yeah. The embroidery that some people did, painting tables. Yeah. My mom, I think, is a good example of that to me because my mom later in life, like 50s, started studying art, taking classes and Mm -hmm. oftentimes online classes, you know, and she's really, really good. Mm -hmm. My whole life, she would make her own clothes. Anytime we had to do like a costume Mm -hmm. or she made me and my sister's poodle skirts and she made these felt poodle appliques by hand with a leash that was on the skirt. My grandma did that. Fabulous. Mm -hmm. And she would hand paint furniture and do all of this really creative stuff. And it was always crafts. Mm -hmm. I'm making that giant blanket for myself. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, man, this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever done. And people talk about knitting like it's like the dumbest pastime. Right. Which it is a hobby, but it's like I'm looking at what I'm making. I'm like, this is beautiful. Right. But what makes these traditionally women art forms not considered fine art. Even just wood carving is a more masculine. Yeah. And it's seen as much more artistic, even though it's the same skill level. Yeah. I don't know that you need those things to Mm -hmm. create, but I think when we see how many male writers, male composers, male artists, male Mm -hmm. architects over history that are acknowledged, one of Virginia Woolf's uh, most popular quotes is that Anon, like anonymous, mm-hmm. was so often a woman in art mm-hmm. or in writing or in music. Just to be taken seriously and get it out there. Yeah, or that they were just never given credit. Mm-hmm. Or just pen names that were male. Yeah. When you look at the body of work and how mm-hmm. male it leans, that access and that inspiration and even validation is is a leg up, mm-hmm. I think. You know, even just that men would be paid for something that a woman wouldn't be paid for. And I think when she ends that section with like, that's why it's so important to do it in poverty and obscurity is like, that's the hard part of being the first, which we're not. No, self-employed writer, women. Yeah. Who just talk shit. Shelter and food. (laughs) Yeah. When I was reading about the Bloomsbury group, so it made me think of something you said to me once. Is there a masturbatory quality to like these creative groups that are just all think the same and all like the same things and you're creating all in the same space? Yeah. You said something about like your MFA program to me once that it was like everyone just trying to have the most tragic story or something. Yeah. Well, and everybody having, gosh, if I ever heard the word banal again in my life, right. I might riot. Yeah. Like, and like, I've talked about Jacqueline, you know, before she was in my program. My friend Raquel has also listened to the podcast and she was in the MFA program with me. There are brilliant, brilliant people I was yeah. in this program with who I took away a lot of really good lessons, obviously. And they're some of the best writing I've read from Mm -hmm. these people I was with. But it does become, I feel like, a bit of an echo chamber, especially when like our program probably split half and half men and women, but it was white. So it didn't have a ton of diversity, especially when programs already kind of are like, okay, we're going to push out people who like genre fiction. Like you have to 
pretend you like certain things and don't like other things. And it does create sort of an echo chamber. It's not like we all ended up writing similarly. I wouldn't say that, but I think we all ended up adjusting in the similar ways, if that makes sense. So it's still like I came out with my own style and I learned a lot. I learned I like gothic fiction. I learned so much, but I think, especially because these programs are so small. Yeah. And usually writers groups like that are so small. Yeah. And they're usually limited by geography also. Like my mm-hmm. MFA programmer, Kelly, is from Italy. I think that's the furthest person we had. I think groups, whether it's an MFA program or just your creative friends, are really important to like have those people to co-create with. Yeah. But I think it can really easily get dangerous. And I think it ultimately detrimental to our work. Yeah, I if agree. If we just hear the same types of feedback and opinions all the time. I have one last question. Okay. Do you think that mental illness is perceived differently between men and women, specifically in their work, whether it's creative work or in a workplace environment? I feel like when I studied Wolf, a huge part of her narrative as a writer when you study her is that she was mentally ill and committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Hemingway was mentally ill and committed suicide. That's not a huge part when you study him in like a college Mm -hmm. setting. And I am... uh, big fan of both. They're presented differently. (laughs) And I just wanted your thoughts. The most like immediate difference I often see with that kind of stuff is for a male artist. It's an aesthetic, Mm -hmm. which I think is detrimental to men too who suffer. I I don't think that's necessarily a positive thing, but the studies then focus more on that person's art than on their mental illness because it's part of their aesthetic as a writer, as an artist, whatever. Oh, look how brilliant he was because he was mentally ill. And with women, it's a tragedy that detracts from their work. I was going to say it detracts from their work. Even if it's not detracting, like not saying their work is less because of it, but just distracting from their work. Like with... The perception Uh, is that it doesn't make them great. Yes. Or it's not what makes them great. Less of a, oh, he was gone too soon, and oh, this was an inevitable end that everybody expected. The way it continues now with, I think it's similar. I'll use an example. (laughs) Yay. From Upper Academia. I, at the beginning of my grad program, was really struggling. It was like the first time really intense PTSD symptoms were presenting themselves. I was having panic attacks in my sleep. And so I was missing some writing center sessions that I was supposed to be working, which obviously isn't good. Like I'm supposed to be going to these sessions. There are students who would like not have a tutor because I wasn't there. Yeah. And it wasn't like an insane amount. And usually I was able to be like, I am not going to make it. And there was usually always an alternate. I was called in to a meeting with the dean of the entire department, the head of my program, and the head of the writing center. One of those was a man. And at this point, my PTSD responses were to sexual assault. I basically had to tell them everything that happened that caused this thing and what was now happening. And their response was essentially to tell me to drop out. And if I wasn't going to drop out, then I had to quit the assistantship, which is what paid my tuition and paid me a stipend. It was the fact that you had to tell them anything in that type of setting. Yes. When I went back into the writing center like the next semester, the new writing center director had to have me sign a contract. This was the first thing she ever found out about me. She had to pull me in office and say, I'm so sorry I have to do this. I've been told that you need to sign this so that like if I miss more than XYZ sessions, 
you know, lose it. I yeah. lose it. Yeah. And she was lovely, you know, ended up being really great and really helpful, but immediately tarnishing my reputation with a new employer, essentially. But then I would see, and I'm not getting into, in this program in particular, there was also someone dealing with pretty intense physical disabilities and they had lots of accommodations accommodations made for them or there was another male student who was struggling with some stuff and it was the reception to that person was oh you know struggling artist makes sense you know like being mentally ill was one thing not handling it well was another right the idea of being being mentally ill as an artist or a writer is kind of like well of course (laughs) that makes you more interesting as an artist but the moment you no longer handle that well is the moment where like access to this program was threatened my reputation was threatened yeah all because of mental illness when it's like this is something that you're supposed to be working with yeah especially in a creative program especially in a creative program yeah i actually my ex one of the funny things he used to say because he could be a difficult person to be around yeah (laughs) and anytime i'd be like man how do you get through life (laughs) like like struggling with certain things so much yeah and he would always say it's all part of my genius and his it was just take it or leave it like you can't have the good parts of me without these things like they're Mm -hmm. all the same thing and you just have to accept all of me or accept none of me and it honestly like was an attitude I think I learned a lot from I think the gender roles are an interesting part of this conversation because one of the reasons we know so much about Virginia Woolf's mental illness is because of her journals Mm -hmm. but I also think in some ways do we subconsciously as women allow ourselves to express these things more than men with our art in the workplace. Mm -hmm. There's this struggling artist thing around men who are mentally ill because they bottle it up, A, and B, it doesn't detract from their productivity, Mm -hmm. even though it does, but they do it quietly. Yeah, They won't ever let anyone see that Mm -hmm. because they can't, Mm -hmm. which isn't fair to them either. Yeah, I don't think it helps anyone. Mm -hmm. Anytime we talk about (laughs) gender, the gender binary, I don't think it's helping anyone. But I think then with women, if you're underperforming or whatever, those periods where like, I feel like I'm in that period right now. I think sometimes those periods create the best art. (laughs) Those periods of reflection, those periods of pain or of like intense joy. Like it's those intense Mm -hmm. feelings where it's almost debilitating. They create the best art. I think that's part of the process. Those times where you're not productive, where you're reflecting, where you're living, where you're being a human. Mm -hmm creates great art. Mm-hmm. And it's always wild to me that there's no understanding or or appreciation for those periods mm-hmm. if it detracts from your productivity. Forcing yourself through those periods of time is going to hurt you in the long run. Yeah. For all of 2022, I feel like I was stagnant at yeah. work. There were days where I just did nothing. Yeah. Then in a, Our last agency, I was excited about and all that kind of stuff, but I could not get myself to do the thing at all. And I think that's why just corporate culture in general is so detrimental to creatives is because it does come in ebbs and flows. That is natural and Mm -hmm. that is good. And you need those downtimes to have those uptimes. And corporate culture does not, or just work culture in general does not allow for that. Or pause. Yeah. Without sacrificing income. They're like, oh, well, take off leave for, you know, your mental health to whatever. But it's like, okay, but you lose more than this many days and you lose income. 
I think that's a huge piece of like why like in a room of one's own when we're talking about that and she mentions income and having a comfortable place to live mm-hmm. and work is important yeah. because it affords you pause. I had through college, mm-hmm. <laughs> through my 20s, I had this extended period of time where I did not feel creative. I was exhausted mm-hmm. and I didn't have the option to take a break. And then I started freelancing and all of a sudden I had all this control over my day mm-hmm. and how I was spending my time. I had extra time. I had free time. I was like the most creative output oh, I've ever had. for me. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge reason why I've gone back to freelancing now because it's like I, that's when I'm happiest. Yeah. I remember the one year I was freelancing, I did a ton of work. I made a ton of money in like the first half of the year. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to take a month off just because I feel like it. Yeah. And I did. And mm-hmm. I needed it. It was yeah. awesome. Being in this physical space, like my house, which again, I mean, it just shows how much, you know, being able to write more regularly or create more regularly is rooted in privilege because just being able to have yeah. like a house with a guest room where I can store stuff for yeah. art, yeah. you know, like I can't imagine trying to do the scale yeah. of things I'm doing now in, small in my old apartment. Yeah grateful for that privilege, but Mm -hmm. it is frustrating that's not accessible to everybody. Right. Like when we're talking about even women who are homemakers or moms or have Mm -hmm. other jobs, or you're trying to do creative pursuits in your free time. Like I think having a, I always had a physical office when I was freelancing. Mm -hmm. I was living with my ex. We would pay hundreds more dollars a month to have a two bedroom apartment Mm -hmm. so I could have an office with a door. Yeah. And I was like, I'm not willing to compromise on this because Mm -hmm. I need a private space. Yeah. And it was partly for my like work work that was making me money. But it's Mm -hmm. like, it may not seem like a huge deal, but I need privacy. Mm -hmm. Like it's not just having a computer. It's not just having a chair. It's not just having a desk. It's like, I need space. I guess you don't need it. It helps a lot. It helps a lot. Goes a long way. Okay. Do we want to play a game? Oh, it's this one. It's guessing scale. Which way do you want to play? Do you want to get guess or do you want to pick the item? I don't care. Either way. Why don't you think of an item? Okay. So it's just a regular item and then I just guess items and you rate it one through 100 and 100 is the item. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like this is going to be impossible. Okay. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Water bottle. 24. Okay. Burrito. 85. Wow. Here we go, baby. Taco. 45. Oh, burrito. Beans. 95. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like this is going to be hard. (laughs) Burrito. Beans is even closer. Honestly, I could be like a 98. Just more specific. Black beans. Well, 98. Refried beans? 98. Bean burrito? (laughs) 75. (laughs) Black beans. Taco Bell? 45. A Taco Bell burrito? 35. What? I can't. (laughs) A panini maker? Further? 55. (laughs) Okay, come on, Sarah. 55, though. Closer than Taco Bell. (laughs) I'm really just like the specificity. Is it a bean burrito extra onions? 35. (laughs) It can't be be further than a regular burrito. (laughs) Yeah, I can. That's specific in the wrong direction. (laughs) And simpler. (laughs) Simpler. Yeah. 
Jeez. Two. What the? <laughs> okay, don't panic, Sarah. We <laughs> Beans is 98. <laughs> Bean is Jeez. 98. What was burrito? 85, you said? 75. And bean, black bean, and refried bean are all 98. <laughs> I thought we were going to get it. And then Kidney bean. 98. <laughs> Chickpea. 98. Can of beans. 100! <laughs> That's why Taco Bell burrito was like a low because I'm like, that is not in my house. <laughs> Well, the packaging is in my house, in my trash can. Okay, that, even though I got confused, that was easier than I thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was like, man, this is so obscure, but I eat beans. Right? And then my <laughs> second guess was burrito. And you're and like, like, fuck. <sighs> I should clarify for the audience that my, my black bean burrito with extra onions guess was because that is Maggie's Taco Bell oh. order. And if you don't know your friend's Taco Bell orders off the top of your head, what? The hilarious part is it's wrong that you just said that. It's not a, a black bean. bean. Burri- well, what? A bean burrito, extra onion. Same. Yeah. It's black beans in it, isn't it? No. Or is it refried Refried. Beans? Well, it's a bean burrito. Mm-hmm. It's the only bean burrito they have. Extra All onion. beans are a 98. So that's why I guessed it's that. It's the vessel that matters. That's why I guessed that. And if you don't know your friends or lovers, Taco Bell order. Your lover friend. Something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And that is my love language. It's Taco Bell. Yeah, I almost, you ate Taco Bell and then someone else ate Taco Bell and told me about it last night. And I was like, should I go get Taco Bell? But I'm trying to build my immune system. That'll build your immune system. (laughs) Yeah, trial by fire. (laughs) It'll definitely increase your immunity to something. (laughs) Food poisoning. (laughs) I have never gotten food poisoning in at least five years. (laughs) Neither have I. It's a Taco Bell. Eat a copious amount of Taco Bell. Yeah. I kind of want some. Should we go? I really, I had it last night, but I would eat it again. I would eat it. But I have to be at something in an hour. Oh, right, 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 right. Oh, yeah. What time is it? Oh, it's only four. Okay, shout out to our new Patreon subscribers, Amber and Janelle. Thank you for subscribing. We love you guys. If you you aren't subscribed to our Patreon, make your New Year's resolution to subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah, only acceptable New Year's resolution. Set an intention for 2024 to be a Patreon subscriber. Support Maggie and Sarah on their journey to becoming podcast bros. Yeah. Also, the hats have now been ordered. Yeah, they're supposed to get here. Over the next week-ish, I think. So delivery will probably be end of January. So by the time this airs, they will probably have been received by us and potentially shipped out as well. So end of January for reception of the hats and stickers for those who bought some. Thank you guys so much. We're so excited for you all to be wearing them. We still have some stickers in stock on the website if you would like a sticker. Okay, where to find us? You may find us on Instagram and TikTok at badwomanintheattic.pod. People love us. We mm-hmm. went small town viral. We also got a little bit of hate. I was mom shamed, cat mom shamed. So if you want to love us or hate us on the internet, find us there. <laughs> we do have a website. Madwomanintheattic.com. You can find our Patreon through our website or at patreon.com slash pod. Yes. And you can subscribe for $3 just if you listen to the podcast and you want to say thank you, support us. It's $3 a month. It 
goes a long way. $6 if you want access to the videos. We are going to start adding more discussion boards to Patreon mm -hmm. in January, which should be fun. That's all. That's all, folks. Thanks for your love. Thanks for your support. Happy we enjoyed our little break. We hope you did too. Burn uh, that sheet that you are probably already made with all your resolutions on it. Yeah, fuck that. You're perfect just the way you are. Yeah. And also, we're going to start doing mini episodes, which are just going to be how we do like little discussion questions at the beginning and end of the episode. So mm -hmm. if there's anything you would find interesting in a mini-sode that's just like a little shit-talking session, and also submit that to us via yes. our email address, hello at madwomaninthealtic.com. Peace and blessings. <laughs> I'm going to smooch you on New Year's Eve. All of you. All New you Year's mad Eve women. has already passed. All you mad women. God, time is such a construct. <laughs> I'm going to smooch your faces consensually. <laughs> Only if you say it's okay. Ho, 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 ho. Oh. oh yeah oh yeah bye love bye. ya bye love ya there kiss, you go. kiss 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 you're doing amazing sweetie okay bye bye i have a first date tonight oh yeah and i need to not look like this you look great uh <laughs> <laughs>